Hi, I'm Amy Porter, and this is my podcast. My mission is to show people how to empower themselves through music, business, and media. I try to see as clearly as possible how I can help. I showcase the music that I've played and the people I've met along the way. I'm a wife and a stepmom. You might know me as a professor, a performer, a producer, a publisher, a recording artist. I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits. Welcome in to my Porter Flute Pod. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. It's season four, episode five, and we're hosting my very first chamber music partner, Tomas George Caracas Garcia, Tom Garcia. He's an ethnomusicologist, musicologist, guitarist, lutenist, and professor of ethnomusicology and Latin American studies at Miami University in Ohio. With us in the pod, asking questions in the interview is Alan J. Tomasetti, and checking our vibe is Justine Sedke. For years, Tom has been a colleague and a coach for my interpretation of Latin American music. Here, you're hearing my performance from 2020's recital that included Piazzolla's tangos. Of course, I coached them with Tom. Thanks for being in Porterflute Pod. We're so happy you're here. I'll start with a little backstory. I've been basically an extended friend and family member of Tom's since 1985 or so. And truth be told, when the chips fell, every single time, I could count on Tom as a friend. The Porter Garcia duo was a great way to play music. I'm so grateful for Tom as a chamber music partner. You'll hear us talk about starting our chamber duo before it was a thing. You'll hear about his thoughts on Villa Lobos since he was held as a baby in the composer's arms. And you'll hear why musicology and knowledge is so important to your music making. Tom Garcia, welcome to Porter Flute Pod. You're my family member. Well, I am your godfather, so don't forget that. That's right. We met at Juilliard. I was 17. You played the tuba. And I bet a lot of people, a lot of people are seeing us with you with a guitar in your hand. So let's start from the beginning about where we met and why you're here still, you know, in my life today. Um, You grew up at West Point and you were playing the tuba and you got into Juilliard. What was that like? Well, yeah, I started tuba. I was always a guitarist, but I started tuba when I was in high school. It turned out I was pretty good at it and went to Northwestern for a couple of years, transferred to Juilliard. Um, if I was going to go somewhere, I had to go to the best. And Juilliard was, and I think still is, at least one of the best. Um, and I thought that if I couldn't make it into Juilliard, I would not be doing music. So I got in and I got a lot of money. So I was going there as a, as a tuba player. But I always played guitar, but I had problems with my hands from playing too much soccer and lacrosse. And I couldn't play full time. So I figured tuba would be the way that I'd be a musician. And I was pretty good at it. Amy and I played in a, we played in a couple of orchestras together when I was a tuba player. Way, way back. But uh, when I started in New York seeing a chiropractor, I started getting rid of all my hand problems and posture problems. 
And I started playing guitar more than I played tuba. And at Juilliard, I once was playing in the stairwell, playing guitar late at night just because it's what I did for fun. And the president of Juilliard heard me and said, you play rather well. And next thing I know, I'm doing all the guitar playing at Juilliard. So it, it, it was kind of weird. Even though I was a tuba major, I was doing mostly guitar for the last few years I was at Juilliard because there was no guitar program at Juilliard at the time. So it worked out really well because anytime anybody needed a guitar or lute or mandolin or banjo at uh, Juilliard, I was the first call. And it worked out pretty well for me. So I got pretty good at it pretty quickly because I was able to do it because I didn't have pain. And that's one thing musicians have to always think about. If it hurts, you're doing something wrong. So um, that led me to full-time guitar. And eventually it led me to full-time guitar with uh, Amy Porter. <laughs> in the Porter Garcia duo. We created the Porter Garcia duo and we, yes, we rehearsed all the time. We did. We played, we started with a very small repertory. Uh, we built our repertory by playing at a, every Sunday at a little cafe in Greenwich Village playing for tips. Yes, we did. Um, and it was, gave us a chance to try stuff out and we did. And we got pretty good at it. But the way we got together was interesting. This is a story, part of the story I have to tell. And that's the fact that Lincoln Center Student Programs was looking to have a new act, a new program that they could send out to schools to do 75 concerts a year. And they wanted either guitar or flute. And I went to the director of Lincoln Center Student Programs. I don't remember his name. Um, and he said that he wanted either guitar or flute. I said, why don't you put us together? And he did. But there's only one problem, and that's the fact that my, fr my good friend Amy Porter was scared to hell out, scared to death of me. <laughs> Do you remember this? I was a little intimidated okay I'll, I'll take that uh amy was intimidated i was kind of a big personality and a tuba player and tuba players tend to be big personalities and a little bit aggressive <laughs> and amy was like uh and they put us together she's like oh my god <laughs> So I just remember you saying, Porter, you have to be the person. You mm -hmm. have to be that person that helps me 
get back the guitar because mm-hmm. you loved the guitar. So we did these gigs and I remember sometimes we were sent to the last stop on the E train in Queens. Oh boy. Uh, we oh yeah. were sent to all over the place. Uh, we'd have to, I'd wear, you know, a dress on the subway and then walk in my little right kitten heels. And mm-hmm. um, we'd play at eight thirty in the morning in somewhere in New York. 75 concerts a year. And we did this for what, three or four years. And yeah. it paid a little bit. It paid okay, but we got really good at that program. We sure did. You know, the Beatles the Beatles earned what they did because they played 292 times at the Cavern Club. I mean, come on. Um, <laughs> exactly. your repetition is very important, and uh, we, we started gigging pretty frequently. You want to hear my favorite experience of that? Absolutely. See if you remember this. We did a gig in Brooklyn, and actually it was out way out in Brooklyn. They rented us a car. I picked up Amy. We went out to Brooklyn. We did two gigs back-to-back. We did like eight and then nine, and it was at a school that was pretty rough. I mean, I my memory has chicken wire separating us from the high school kids. Um, but it was a really rough school, and we did the gig, and we are coming back, and Amy is exhausted and sort of snoozing in the passenger seat, and I'm driving across the Brooklyn Bridge and we get stuck in traffic and I turn on the radio we're stuck for an hour and I turn on the radio and You Can Call Me Al by Paul Simon comes on and next thing I know all the cars around us are listening to You Can Call Me Al the next thing I remembered the next thing I knew was that everybody opened their doors and got out onto the Brooklyn Bridge and started dancing at 9 in the morning to You Can Call Me Al by Paul Simon from Graceland. You remember this? I remember that. We were laughing our our butts off. Laughing our butts off. It was funny as hell. That was my favorite, not my playing experience, but that was my favorite memory from us going out and doing all these these school concerts with Lincoln Center student programs. And we did those a lot. Uh, We did some interesting ones all over the city. We played in Westchester County. I think we went to Connecticut. Yeah. Jersey. I mean, anywhere within 50 miles of New York, we went and we played. And we did a lot, and we got pretty good at it. So we decided there was a competition called Artists International, and we decided to, as sort of a, a, a on a whim, we decided to take this audition. We didn't think we could win, but we said, what the hell, we need to try. So I bet Amy we would. She said, Amy's like, no, we'll never do it. And I said, I think we can. So we made a bet. And the bet was that if I win, Amy had to buy me an orange flesh honeydew melon, which was a brand new thing that no one had ever seen and was really expensive. If Amy won, I'd have to buy her a quart of Haagen-Dazs ice cream, which was something also relatively new. And oh, by the way, I never got my melon. So do you remember the audition? <laughs> I do remember the audition. We went and we played. I do too. And I remember walking out of the building. It was the International School up on the Upper West Side. Upper West Side, yep. We got out on the onto the sidewalk and we laughed our butts off. And we were like, did, did that just happen? Did we just play that well? Did we just, our restaurant music and our gig music just flew into Carnegie Hall? Like, I think we could win this thing. We were laughing. We so were hard. laughing hysterically. We played, I think it was amazing because usually in competitions you get nervous. Oh, we but- were nervous. Well, not at all. We were just like, we're going to nail this as best we can. And we did. I think it's probably the best we ever played to that moment. And we were out going, did we just do it? was like an out of body experience times two. It really was. 
It, it really, really was. was. And we're out on the side, and we're like, I think we may win this. And that, we ended up winning it and winning the Chamber Music Prize. Oh, right. We commissioned... Larry Widows, Lawrence Widows, who was a theory and composition teacher at Juilliard and a good friend of mine. He was one of the co-inventors of PDQ Bach. I can okay. see that. <laughs> right. He and George Master and Peter Shickley were all graduate students at Juilliard together in the early 60s. And they invented PDQ Bach, and then Peter Shickley sort of bought them out. So uh, Larry, I, I asked him, would you write us a piece? And he said, yeah. And I said, how much? And he said, are you kidding? Be my pleasure. Right. We played um, Mancheca, which is disguised as Schubert Guitar Quartet. We did the Schubert, the Schubert right. uh, Guitar Quartet. Isn't it Mancheca? Uh, Mancheca, yeah. Mancheca. It was a trio that Schubert reset with the cello part. Right, because Trio Verado is now going to do that as a trio. Yep. Yeah. And so we played the Schubert Matjeka. We played Larry Widow's Commission. We played... We, yeah. Oh, what was it? We played the, the, the Faya Seven Spanish Songs. Yes, that we had coached with Margot Garrett. With so. Margot Garrett and with Jeannie Backstresser and yes. Sam Barron and oh. everybody else. Right. Right. And we also played a piece by Giuliani for guitar and flute from the 1820s. The hardest thing we ever played. I was just going to say, wow, that's a little beast. And we also played the Casanova Tedesco duo. That's right. Right. So and uh, we we won. Who knew? We won, and we did uh, our Carnegie debut together at Carnegie Recital Hall when it was still called Carnegie Recital Hall before the name changed to Weill Recital Hall. Um, and we did that in February of 87. Mm, and we have our picture in front of the poster outside the hall. Yes, we have a picture of that. And the, of course, I got to tell this story. So Amy, when I planned that Amy would come over to my house, to my apartment on 97th and Riverside. And we would spend the day together getting ready for our concert, which I think was at six o'clock at night. So Amy came and, you know, makeup and hair and all that stuff. And, you know, I warmed up and we just hung out all day and we ate soup and blah, blah, blah. This was in February. So and then we got in a, we got in a taxi and Amy said, can I do it? Can I do it? Can I do it? And I said, sure. And she looked at the driver and says, Carnegie Hall, please. <laughs> She did it. We took a cab to Carnegie Hall. We get there. Our picture is in front of Carnegie Hall. And then we go up to Wild Recital Hall and we do our concert and we did all that music. I did some solo for the Lobos and Amy did Seventh Healing Song of John Joseph Blue. And we packed the house. We played our asses off. We had... Um, you know, people sent us flowers. I mean, it was, it was old school. We had, you know, dozens of roses in the in the green room. And it was just a sort of interesting evening. We got reviewed in the New York Times. And the review said we were interesting young musicians. And unfortunately, didn't have a lot of repertory. Because back then, there wasn't. But we were interesting young musicians. And we played well. And we did. I mean, it was, it was a gig. It was an interesting evening, for sure. Followed by a reception at my brother's apartment's. In Soho, and you your remember. yes, your your brother was very gracious to host my family from all over. It was just so fun. What a great was, night that was! And both my brothers lived in the same brownstone. There's a three 
three apartment brownstone, and they opened up both apartments for us, catered by Balducci's. We had all kinds of crazy people there, including Larry Widow and his wife, who is also known as Chevy Chase's mother. <laughs> That's right. So, and that led to one of our craziest gigs we ever did. That's right. Talk about the craziest gig we ever did. The craziest gig we ever did. We got a call from a guy. I'm not going to say his name because, you know, I really shouldn't. But he was a friend of Ned Chase, who was Chevy's brother. And he said, listen, I when I was a kid, I heard these guitar and flute playing on the beach in Cannes, France, playing for an old gentleman who was just sitting on the beach and he wanted live music. That gentleman was Pablo Castells. Okay, so he said for his 40th birthday party, he wanted guitar and flute on the beach in, in the Hamptons out on Long Island. Okay, so he hired me and Amy for two weekends. It was the craziest thing because if it was rained out Saturday and Sunday, he wanted us the following weekend. And we said, okay, he rented us a car. We go out to the, out to the Hamptons and we're playing on the beach with mimes and all kinds of crazy people dancing around behind us as we played and we got paid a lot of money because we, we played one day but he paid us for four he rented us a car for a week and we just it was the craziest gig and there were all these you know rich wall street type people who ended up hiring us to do other gigs so i refused to take my flute out onto the beach i mean you're paying me to do that and i remember that specifically like if a grain of sand gets in the pad or scratches the gold. Like I was really, you know, I, I didn't get the flute out until I got onto the beach, took it out, really didn't move around a lot. And I remember the dancer coming by thinking, you know, don't, don't spray me with sand. You know, I was just really yeah. hyper aware at that gig, but it, it really was just, uh, wow. I felt part of a tableau. It was, I mean, it was a full show. It wasn't just us. It was this, this crazy party <laughs> and it was the best pay we ever got because he it's paid true. us for four days it's true it's you know true. yeah it was an interesting time it really was why the influence of the guitar so heavily was it brazil yeah um i was born in brazil i came to the united states as a child right as a baby and uh, my mother studied with the great Brazilian um, composer, Hector de Lobos, who, among other things, was a guitarist. And I actually met Villalobos. This is an interesting story. Villalobos' last concert 
was on July either 11th or 14th, I don't remember, 1959, four months old. My parents and I had just arrived from Brazil three weeks before. I was, you know, they, I came in a basket. I was a little tiny infant. And Villa Lobos's last public performance was at Anthony Wayne Recreation Area, which is part of the Bear Mountain Park System, which is just north of New York City and just south of West Point, where my parents moved to. So my parents went to meet my mother's former teacher, Villa Lobos, and they took me along, and he actually picked me up and held me. Oh my gosh. Right. Now, I don't remember it. It's okay. But I heard my entire life, oh, yes, you met Phil Lobos. So it's zero degrees of separation. And when I was a kid and when I was playing guitar and studying guitar with different people, Phil Lobos became sort of my thing because it was sort of my mom's thing. And I started looking at Brazilian music and then looked at other Brazilian genres, including Choro and Samba and a bunch of other things. And I got pretty good at it, at Brazilian music. But... Also part of my Brazilian heritage, I was a soccer player, and I did a lot of soccer, and I broke my hands multiple times. So I had real issues with the fingers and getting and playing, and which is one of the reasons I didn't go directly into music school as a guitarist. I just couldn't do it physically. But when I could come back, I did. And uh, Amy and I would do the Bacchianus Number no. 5 guitar and flute, and now I have a lot more uh, Philolobos and other Brazilian music that works with guitar and flute and guitar and violin and guitar and cello. And most of what I'm doing now is Brazilian music. Not a surprise. And Amy, to this day, when she's doing Brazilian music, she'll give me a call and say, well, can you help me with this? And I'll say, sure. And we've done that a couple of times. And it works out really interestingly because this is something that's near and dear to me. And I got my doctorate in this stuff. So how did you get into the musicology and ethnomusicology? Well, if you're a working freelance musician in New York, either two things are going to happen. Either you're going to love it or you're going to hate it. I hated it. Yeah. And I got to the point, I mean, even though I was playing with Amy and I was doing a lot of work and I, I, I did, I made a nice living. It got to the point where I felt like I was a piece of furniture playing so many gigs 
You know, uh, especially in the late 80s, before the economy went south, I was, we were doing a lot of corporate gigs and playing at the World Trade Center and the World Financial Center and Citibank and IBM building and all this other crazy stuff, right? It's almost um, like you're, 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 you were a contractor and that's not what you were set out to do. That's, I was doing a lot of contract for us, for me and for other people. And I got tired of it. I really did. And I decided I wanted to get out of it between you and me and other people. I did about 75 concerts. And I probably played, I don't know, 250, 300 gigs. I couldn't stand it. I hated it. I made a lot of money. I, I started flying. I bought a partnership in an airplane. Remember um, that? You started yeah. flying. I started I flying. Yeah. And I, you know, I... I, I was very frustrated because all I was doing was playing. And when you're freelance, you don't say no. You don't take vacations. At one point, I wore a suit uh, seven days a week for like five, six months. It wasn't for me. So I decided to go back to school. And I went and got a master's in musicology and a Ph.D. in uh, historical performance practice with an emphasis in ethnomusicology. It allowed me to do something that I really want to do, and that is make a living teaching, which I'm really good at. It's something that, I, uh, that I've always been good at, um, and this is something that always interested me. But it also lets me keep doing what I love to do, which is play, and now I do 15, 20 concerts a year. I love it. I enjoy every single one. I mean, COVID has been a real bummer because we can't go out and play the way we have. In fact, the day that I flew back from, I was in Portugal on sabbatical when COVID hit. I was supposed to fly that day to Armenia to play a concerto with the State Symphony. Oh, my. Yeah, and I had to come back. And now we're supposed to go this May to play with them, but with the stuff that's going on in Ukraine, we're not going to Armenia. I Ain't going to happen. Yeah, but, and, um, you know, I'm playing in Portugal a lot. I'm playing in Brazil a lot. I'm playing it now. I'm doing a tour uh, in Sao Paulo, Brazil in September. I'm doing a tour in October in the northeast of Brazil. I'm playing. I'm not playing full time. I love everything I do. All the music that I play is in some way related to my research because what I'm interested in is the connections how things are connected. How do we get from the polka tango, from the polka to the choro? How do we get from the polka to Musica Norteña in Mexico? These are all things blending European and African and indigenous and other influences into something that's really interesting. That's what I find interesting. That's what I like to play. I write books. I'm in the middle of a book now. I'm editing a handbook on Brazilian popular and folk music. I just did a textbook on global popular music, which is all about connections. My book on Brazilian music on Choro is one of the, the standards for the literature because that's what I do. And Amy and I have played Choros before. I hope we get to play Choros again. I love to perform. I hated making my living at it. And now I have the luxury of teaching at a university, a very good university, Miami University. Um, where I teach ethnomusicology and musicology, and uh, I built a guitar program that I don't teach in. One of my good friends and colleagues teaches guitar, but I got the program approved. I'm very heavily invested in Portuguese music. I'm affiliated with the university in Portugal as well. And why? Because I'm looking at connections, and I can do this, and I can play as much as I want, and I'm playing really cool stuff. When you say connections, can you define that? Because because we're looking at what ethnomusicology and musicology in general can offer the musicians. So are you talking about well, connections historically to the pieces we're playing, to the composers? Yeah. Well, think about this. There was an old TV show about 20, 25 years ago on the History Channel um, that was called Connections. 
where this British historian, whose name was Paul Burke, would every show say something really cool, like, because Marie Antoinette head chopped off, I'll have the microwave oven. And you go, what? <laughs> What? And what he would do in the show is show how everything, how Marie Antoinette's head being chopped off led to this, and this was connected to this, and this was connected to this, and this ended up being connected to this. And he chose, I just made those, those two examples up, but th what he showed was how you could get something really extremely separate and show how they are connected. It had a profound impact on the way I look at, at music and the way I look at a lot of different things. So... For example, Latin American music, there are all these different genres that combine African influences and European influences in different ways that all developed around 1870. The tango, the rumba, musica norteña, choro in Brazil, machixi in Brazil, the rumba in Cuba, all these things developed at around the same time, and they're all in some ways closely related. They are connected in that they take European dances like the polka and the chotis and the waltz and put into them African and colonial and in some cases indigenous influences to come up with something that is very unique. An example of this in the United States is ragtime, which is essentially a polka on steroids. <laughs> right, so polka and choro are connected, and polka and rumba, and polka and musica norteña, and music and polka, you know, all these things are connected in the Americas because of the large number of slaves who are from Africa and different mean migrations, all the Germans migrating, bringing the accordion and bringing the bass and the tuba, right? And all these Germans going to uh, Argentina as well <laughs> and to Brazil. All these things ended up developing different musics in different ways, which I find fascinating. And what I'm interested in is how do you play this? How do you play it historically accurately? How do you play it in the spirit of the, of the music, his, the way it was done, performance practice? So I'm looking how to connect these different things. And I've gotten into really extreme, in fact, uh, even applied ethnomusicology, in that I'm so interested in this music that I'm actually building instruments that were originally used for this music. I'm turning myself into a luthier because in order to understand the music, I need to understand the instruments, and many of these instruments are extinct. So I'm building, for example, a viola tuero, which is a Portuguese instrument. I built two. I'm part of a research group they're trying to revive the instrument. This instrument led to different folk instruments in Brazil, which developed a little bit differently, but you can still see the roots, you can see the connections. So one of the next instruments we want to build is a Brazilian folk guitar called the viola capira. Also, the little guitar called the cavaquinho has the same roots as the ukulele. Incidentally, the ukulele is a Portuguese instrument, it's not Hawaiian. So I'm one of those, which very much related to an instrument from the island of Madeira, which was called the machete. So I'm going to build one of each in order to understand the differences, in order to understand how they develop, how they evolved, and to use them in performance. I'm actually planning a concert in the fall where I'm going to have nine instruments on stage, all of which I built, all playing different kinds of music. That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a different approach. But in order for me to understand the music, I had to understand the instrument.
So, I mean, think about this. Philo Lobos wrote the way he did. And for he wrote some of the most important guitar music. I'm actually published a new book on Villa Lobos is coming out next year on Villa Lobos in Europe, and I have a chapter on Villa Lobos in Segovia, the guitarist. And the argument I make in this in this chapter is that Villa Lobos produced some of the most important music for the solo guitar and chamber music with guitar as well, including the sextet, the great piece, which I've done um, here and in Brazil. He wrote a lot of other things that work extremely well for guitar and flute, including a piece called Distribution of the Flowers. But all these things were on a guitar that isn't the modern classical guitar, this big monster, this big behemoth that we all play now that makes a lot of noise. He played on a little tiny guitar that was essentially a flamenco guitar, right? So everybody's playing Bill Lobos's solo guitar stuff, and it's really hard when you have a really big guitar with a really long string length. I've played his original guitar the one that he used to compose these things, by the name of the Luthier's name is Garcia, by the way. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, coincidence. But it's a little tiny guitar. It's a little flamenco guitar, essentially. Instead of being 67 centimeters in string length, it's 64. Now, that doesn't sound a lot to the layperson, but to the guitarist, that's a radical difference, right? So, Villalobos, on his guitar, his music was a lot easier because the distances were shorter. So if you play it on a big monster guitar, it's really hard. If you play it on the, one of the originals, it's relatively easy. Because that is what Phil Lobos was doing. That was what he intended. If you're going to do it, do it. That doesn't mean you shouldn't play it on a classical guitar, but you need to understand why it is more difficult on a classical guitar. It means you have to alter your technique. It means you have to shed a lot more because it gets much more complicated. It's like switching from a, um, a regular flute, I'm guessing, to an alto flute. It's the same basic beast, but there's a big difference in the where your hands go. It's where your hands go and where your ear goes as well. And, your, and where um, your, your embouchure and everything else. Yep. But it's not, they're closely related, but they're not exactly the same. No. I'm not saying you should only play on a small guitar, but that's the way Villalobos composed them. And now I understand the music better. And when I coach graduate students in master classes on these pieces, I say, realize that this is extremely difficult. So it mean you have to change your hand position. doesn't mean you have to change the way you're holding the instrument. It means you have to change angles. You know, think about the physics of the instrument. Think about the ergonomics of the instrument. It's got to be about affordance. The notion that something has to be comfortable in the hand in order for it to work well. And that's something that I'm very, very convinced we should be doing. As to Villalobos, yeah, he's everywhere now. Yeah, okay, fine. But um, consider one thing. Most of the editions are, have errors in them. I only perform for manuscripts with Villalobos. That's why I call you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's all kinds of errors all the time. So if you and one of the things that's going on now is a lot of people are working and trying to fix that. And I'm working with the Villa Lobos Museum. There's a new English language catalog of the Villa Lobos Museum coming out that will let you get access to a lot more information on Villa Lobos. I know this because I edited it. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it should be coming out in the next few months. So if you're interested in Villa Lobos, you want to know more, you should get to the Villa Lobos Museum's website in a few months and take a look at their new English language catalog, which will help you understand what he did, how he did it, why he did it. It's difficult because all previous versions are only in Portuguese. There's now an English. So if you want to know about Phil Lobos and flute, you can search through that the e-version of that catalog and see everything he did for flute and how he did it and where was the first performance and who was the first performer. You can look up who that performer was. I mean, this is interesting stuff. It is. It really is. And Read like, the books. Read the books, yes. Read and chapter I, nine of my book on Shoru. Okay, we will do which that. Which is all about 
It's about the connection between classical and popular music using Villalobos as the focus. Because oh. Villalobos was a pop musician. Another thing about Villalobos, he was a pop musician. He played in bars and restaurants and even whorehouses. Of Villalobos and other Brazilian composers, there's one named Ricardo de Cuchillan. He's fantastic. He's a good friend of mine. There's uh, Lucas Galon, in, uh, who I just, I'm going to be playing one of his concertos in the not too distant future. There are young guys out there. There's lots of Brazilian music that people don't know. There's stuff for flute, there's stuff for bassoon. There's so much cool music out there that nobody knows. Um, do a little digging. There are a lot of really good composers. There's one composer who, uh, uh, actually a friend of mine who passed away a few years ago, who studied with Nadia Boulanger and with Oliver Messien. And who he is that? incredible. So his name is Almeida Prado. Spell the last name? P-R-A-D-O. Prado, okay. So name some of your favorite yeah. unknown Brazilian composers so the flute nerds can write them down. Right. One is Mignone, Francisco Mignone, M-I-G-N-O-N-E. Another one is Geha Pesci, G-U-E-R-R-A-P-E-I-X-E. -E. wrote some really interesting stuff. Carmago Guarnieri. His real name is Mozart Carmago Guarnieri. Right. His brother's name is Rossini, incidentally. I think his parents were really interesting. Guarnieri has some really interesting music. Look at it. There's also a lot of popular music that flute was part of the tradition, a genre called shoru. You look up my book on Amazon, it's called shoru. Yes, can you tell everyone that it's it's pronounced that way and it's spelled C-H-O-R-O, -O, so it's not Correct. shoru. shoru. And it's a genre that developed us around the same time as ragtime and as tango and as rumba and other genres Around also the same time as nationalism was taking hold in Europe around the 1870s. So, Shoro is the Brazilian instrumental pop genre that came from Rio de Janeiro, my hometown. And it is a genre that originally was the ensemble of different sized guitars seven string guitar, regular guitar, and little tiny four string cavaquinho, which looks like an ukulele, and a flute. A woman named Pichinguinha. Now, I got into Shoro, I got into the Lobos because my mom, but I got into Shoro because Pichinguinha was my godfather's godfather. Pichinguinha was, he was the Louis Armstrong of Brazilian music. And he did this incredible music. A lot of it works so well on flute because he was a flute player. He was amazing. He was tremendous. And I was raised listening to his music. And now, every chance I perform music and I work, do it with lots of different people, the best way to do it, in my opinion, is with flute because that's the way he heard it. It's giving us some great programming ideas beyond just cultural representation. Yeah, I mean, think about this. If you're going to do, for example, you want to do a, con a concert of Brazilian f uh, flute music, we would have to do things like the Bacchianus Number no. 5. But I have arranged it out now so you actually use guitar, flute, and cello. It works tremendously. Do the Villobo Sextet, which is for flute, oboe, saxophone, guitar, harp, and celesta. 
Find another ensemble that uses that combination. Go ahead. You won't. But great piece of music. It's only about seven and a half minutes long. You can't build an entire concert out of it, but it's a really good focus piece. And you play Villalobos uh, Shorter Number One with, there's a, an arrangement out there that I play. I did not do it. I play it, though, that works with flute and guitar. It's a solo piece with an obligato flute part. It works really well. There are other pieces like Distribution of the Flowers. There are songs that Villalobos wrote that work tremendously with guitar and flute. So that's the first half of the concert. And then the second half of the concert, come out and play Shorter and find a guitarist, a bass player, a percussionist, and a flutist, boom, you're done. And get out there and play stuff that you're not bound visually to the score, where it's about the ears, it's about improvised accompaniment, it's about embellishing a melody, just like the Baroque, incidentally, and do stuff that is really cool, and the audiences, let me tell you, will love it, because good music, it doesn't matter if it's classical, pop, rock and roll, hip-hop, I don't care. Good music is good music. And if you're going out and playing, if you can play all this stuff, you will win the audience, they will come back, and they want to hear you all the time. I have a shorter group here in town where the bass player is an old colleague of mine, Noah Cope. He um, is from Oxford, Ohio, so he and I play together. I have a fiddle player, because I don't have a flute player here, I have a fiddle player. The guy's amazing. He was um, Willie Nelson's uh, violinist fiddle player for 10 years. The guy's amazing. So we play, and every time we play, pack the house. Why be combination of classical music? We do a piece that Amy and I have done a bunch of times by uh, by Iber. It's a really cool Spanish piece, right? We do that piece, and then we do some other things, and we do Villalobos, and then we do Shorto. Boom, the audience loves it. They come back every single time. If you play good music, you play it with quality, you play it with integrity, I don't care what, it, what the roots are. What a great recipe that is for a great concert. Yeah, I mean, and if you're going to play something like, um, there's great music for flute and guitar beyond Villalobos, things like the history of the tango, which Amy's played numerous times, I've played numerous times, and Amy and I have played bits and pieces of it together, right? So you're going to play that, fine, but you have to, if you're going to play history of the tango, what do you need to understand? Well, gee, the tango. <laughs> Right. So what do you do? You do some research on the tango. You do some research on the Nuevo Tango, which means Astor Piazzolla. Incidentally, he was raised in the Bronx. He, speak, he spoke English with a Bronx accent. Okay? Good to so, know. Yeah, I met him, and he, I started speaking with him, and he switched to English, and it was a Bronx accent. It surprised the hell out of me. But if you're going to play Piazzolla or anybody else, you need to do the little bit of homework. You need to understand where it's coming from. You need to listen to Adios Nonino. You need to listen to Libertango. You need to listen to some of his greatest hits in order to understand how this fusion of classical and pop music comes together. What he learned from Nadia Boulanger, right, that he called Tango Sinfonico. Right. So if it's a symphonic tango or a classical tango, gee, where's the, where are the roots? The better, best musicians will figure out how can I play this as close to the source as possible. And Amy, right. you've played stuff like that, and you call me up and say, can you coach me on this? And I say, of course, because you have to play it with the intent of the composer, this historical performance practice. And if you're going to do that, you need to do it. You need to do your homework. And if you're going to play any other composer, if you're going to play Mozart, Everybody plays Mozart, but how many people understand where Mozart was, where he came from? 
right? He wrote the concerto in D, but he kind of didn't because it was the oboe concerto in C, okay? I see the correlation, absolutely. I I just don't want to be wrong when I'm playing a composer, so I think calling you and, and me really putting my neck on the line I've put my neck on the line before with Bach cello suites, but it took eight years, right? Cargaylor right. Caprices took seven years. Yeah. The gestation period of something like this. It takes a while. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. And and you, what I suggest from, to my students is that you, you, you have to get your feet wet before you jump all the way in. Some students just want to play the notes, and I don't understand that. If you want to be a musician, it's all about the ears. It's all about the brain. It's all about the heart. It's not about the eyes. So, you know, the old joke that you got to get the score in your head, not your head in the score, right? Love that. Yeah. And um, so if you're going to do that, and, and again, I don't care if it's Bach. I play Bach all the time. It took me a long time. It took me 10 years before I performed the Chacon. In I hear you. I hear you. Now I'm playing uh, uh, some pieces, some violin pieces on the, the guitar. I can play all the notes, but I still haven't figured out the music. I still haven't figured out exactly how to make it work on the guitar. Because the guitar isn't a violin, and there are things that I can do that a violin can't do, and vice versa. So in order to play it with integrity, in order to play all the voicings, both implied and actual, I need to be able to understand the music, and it takes a while. And I'm, you know, I get a little bit obsessive. I probably have 20 books on Bach sitting over here, and I've read them all, because I want to understand where Bach is coming from. I'm also a PhD in musicology. I mean, come on. Yeah. But regardless, any kind of, any musician needs homework. There's, a, there's an old movie and a TV show called Fame. You remember this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Debbie Allen's in this movie, and some of our colleagues from Juilliard were in this movie, right, back in the, in the early 80s. But Debbie Allen says something, if you want to be a performer, you have to pay, and this is where you start paying, that was in her school. And I would say, if you want to be a performer, you have to pay, and that payment is in doing your homework. It's got to be the hands, and it's got to be the brain, and how do you understand the music so that you can actually shape a phrase? So you can actually understand the scope of the piece. So you can actually understand how this piece relates. I, as a tuba player, I used to play the Bach um, cello suites. Right? I could play all the notes, but I couldn't. I was too young. I was too immature to really figure out the music. It took me a long time before I was comfortable with it. Sound familiar? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and there's so much music, oh, so much good music. There's a lot of bad music, and so, okay, but there's so much good music that could be so much better that the the experience is enhanced both for the performer and for the audience if the performers understand implicitly what's going on, and that takes a little bit of work, right? Especially something outside the Western canon, outside of what I call DWEMs, D W E M, Dead White European Men. Right. And something that I don't tend to play. Now, that said, I recently built a romantic guitar. It's actually sitting right behind me. And what do I play on that? Music from the 1820s in Vienna. I built an 1820s guitar. And now I understand much better the music of Meritz and Giuliani and Johann Nepomuk Hummel and other people who wrote for the guitar in the period because I'm playing one of the instruments from the period. Right. That yeah. tells me how things work, but the sound was different, how the articulation was different. Even simple things like holding the instrument was different, and that changes the way I look at the music. It changes the way I interpret it. Oh, and by the way, it makes me play a lot faster. 
because the instruments are so much smaller, the technique is much easier. You play faster. Interesting. Go figure. Go figure. Yeah. Well, this has been so informative. I appreciate all the knowledge you've brought to us because we need it at this moment. We have students coming up that need information that they're only getting in a shallow way. I always say sometimes we get information online that's a mile wide and an inch deep. You are 100% an inch that deep, really? Uh, a centimeter. Um, yeah, I mean, and that's one of the issues that we're dealing with all the time. When I was at Northwestern, we took two years of music history. Too many programs now are one year of music history. And I just don't think it's enough. I really don't. As you still need to get a much broader picture. And you need to dig a little bit deeper. So I'm working with several graduate students now in Portugal and in Brazil, doctoral students, who are digging in extremely deep, and I find it very heartening. But I have one student who didn't know. I mean, I was bringing up things, and he didn't know. What did he do? He went, and he learned it. He dug. It takes work. It takes a little bit of sweat. Nothing wrong with sweat. And I'm telling people, don't take the words catching up to your scholarship. Don't put a speed and a timeline in your brain to say, I have to know this much by this day. Please don't feel bad that you don't know what you don't know. You just don't. And then you grow and wisdom comes from that. So I I just know that I grew wiser working with you all those times (laughs) at the Figaro Cafe. At the Figaro Cafe. Hashing it out, Lincoln Center student program. And I just adore you still to this day and a lot of life together, too. We went through a lot of life together. Um, You know, we, we, we played all over the place. We knew each other's families extremely well. Yeah. You know, um, your parents, I, I love dearly. They were very nice to me. And uh, you know my mom very well. And um, and my brothers. Um, you know, family is family. And family is what you make it. Yeah. But, um, you know, we started out as, as you as a 17-year-old, me as a 20-something-year-old. Um, and we had great experiences. We went to a great school. We had great colleagues. But it's, I'm still evolving you're still evolving. We are becoming better. We're becoming deeper. We always strive to become better, to become deeper. We, we listen to great artists for most of our lives. And what we can do is emulate, emulate what they did. And they were doing things that were very, very, very exciting, very deep, very thoughtful. And it evoked in us an emotional response. 
an affective experience. That's what music should be. And if it's affective for you, if it touches your soul, it will touch your audience's soul. And that's what we're trying to do as musicians. And frankly, that's what I'm trying to do as a scholar as well, is get students to understand that, that if we, if we are convinced that what we're doing is right, it's just, it's deep, it's well thought out, that comes across to the audience and the audience has a much deeper experience and they will remember your concerts for a very long time. I appreciate you being in Porter Flute Pod. Uh, you're very welcome. Alan, thank you for standing and listening to us yak for an hour. <laughs> This was so heartwarming for me. Thank you, Tom. It was great remembering the times we spent trying to make it as musicians in New York City in the 1980s. You can ask Tom a question by emailing him at garciatg at miamioh.edu. Join us in our next Porter Flute Pod when my guest is friend, composer, publisher, and clarinetist, Daniel Dorf. He's been at Theodore Presser Publishing long enough to reach legacy status in our music world. You can find more about me at amyporter.com or porterflute.com. And on social media, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram, I'm Porterflute. Thanks for being here. I'm so grateful for you.